Well, good morning. This morning's uh, sermon is the ninth sermon in our series of 11 sermons on the nature of Scripture. And the focus today is on the sufficiency of Scripture. And I thought that for our church historical lead-in that we've been doing week by week, uh, that we'd go to what really is the main confession of Anglican communions uh, worldwide, and that is the 39 Articles from 1571. So here is Article 6 of the 39 Articles. This touches on the sufficiency of Scripture. It's a shorter shorter statement this, this week. It reads, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man, that it should be believed as an article of faith or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. Again, that's Article 6 of the 39 Articles of Religion of the Church of England. Uh, This remains the gold standard confession of our Anglican brothers and sisters. Be blessed now as you continue in worship. As we turn now to uh, our ninth sermon on the nature of Scripture, let's take time to pray. Lord our God, to whom or to what shall we compare you? Indeed, Lord, you are incomparable. You are supreme. There is none like you. Lord, you are supreme over all other so-called gods. You are supreme over the creation that you have made, which includes us. You are supreme in might and in power and in faithfulness and in mercy and in love. Lord God, as we turn now to discuss the word that you have exhaled into our world, I pray, Lord, that you would help us Help me as the one delivering the message and help every hearer, Lord, kindle within us, continue to do that, a fire for you, a fire to declare and proclaim your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. In the 16th chapter of the gospel according to Luke, Jesus gives the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Maybe you remember that story. As concerns the rich man, he was a guy who was driving big wheels and making big deals, to quote my late mentor, pastoral mentor, Johnny Collins. The rich man was living a life of sheer luxury, but at his gate, there was laid poor Lazarus, a person who was plagued with open sores and who was very hungry. Both the rich man and Lazarus died. And in the afterlife, the rich man went to Hades. He went to the place of torment, while Lazarus went to Abraham's side. And the rest of the parable in Luke chapter 16 is essentially a conversation that happens between the rich man suffering as he is in Hades and Abraham in heaven, Lazarus being by his side. 
One of the things that the rich man pleads for, if we read the parable, he pleads for this in that conversation, is that Lazarus be sent to the rich man's five brothers in order to warn those brothers to do whatever they can to avoid the place of torment. Twice, the rich man pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus from the dead to his brothers. The rich man says in verse 30, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. The man is saying there, essentially, surely if a ghost or a spirit appeared to my brothers, warning them to stay away from Hades, they would be so profoundly shocked by that supernatural experience that they would turn to God and abandon their wicked ways. That's all it will take, Father Abraham. Just send the ghost of Lazarus to my brothers. The rich man appeals twice in this way to Abraham, and both times the reply that Abraham gives is incredibly significant. In verse 29, and again in verse 31, Abraham stresses the fact that the five brothers who are still living on the earth, not yet pushing up grass in their coffins, these brothers have Moses and the prophets, and they must listen to Moses and the prophets. What's Abraham saying there? He's saying that the five brothers, listen, they have all they need in the Old Testament scriptures, a.k.a. Moses and the prophets. The five brothers who are still alive have sufficient revelation. They have sufficient warning. They have sufficient instruction from God in their Hebrew Bible. The brothers don't need any apparition to come along and warn them and encourage them to turn to God. They have enough instruction in their Bible. Let them read their Bible and listen to its pages. Listen to what God is telling them in its pages. Everything necessary for the salvation of those brothers and for the carrying out of their mission under God before they died, everything was given in the scriptures that they had at their disposal. The scriptures were enough for them. The scriptures provided all that the brothers needed. Well, this morning in our ninth sermon on the nature of Scripture, we are tackling the subject of the sufficiency of Scripture. The Scriptures were sufficient for the five brothers to repent, to turn to God, to live a life that was pleasing to God, and the Scriptures are sufficient for you and I in the same way. As we get started this morning, I want to offer you two separate 
simple definitions of the sufficiency of Scripture just to get us focused more on the subject at hand. The first definition of the sufficiency of Scripture comes to us from Matthew Barrett, and it reads as follows. The sufficiency of Scripture means that all things necessary for salvation and for living the Christian life in obedience to God and for his glory are given to us in the Scriptures. I think that's a decent definition because it highlights two crucial things. Salvation and living obediently to God for his glory. Well, hello. I hope that you are still with us. There's always firsts in this uh, whole process of live streaming uh, sermons. So uh, this is a first. Our live stream suddenly dropped. So I hope you're still with us. We're going to pick up essentially where we continued. Um, I was talking about the fact that the scriptures, according to Abraham in that parable, were enough for the five brothers. They, the scriptures gave them all they needed for salvation and for living a godly life, and the same is the case with you and I. I want to give you now two definitions, two separate definitions of the sufficiency of scripture. It's what we're talking about this morning. Uh, to help us focus more on the subject at hand. So the first definition comes from Matthew Barrett, and it reads, and by the way, uh, we've decided not to have PowerPoint for the rest of the sermon today, just to uh, try, try to make it a little easier for us on the technological end. So I'll read these definitions to you from Matthew Barrett, first of all. Quote, The sufficiency of Scripture means that all things necessary for salvation and for living the Christian life in obedience to God and for his glory are given to us in the scriptures. That is, I think, a very good definition because it highlights two crucial things. Salvation, number one, and living obediently to God for his glory, number two. In the pages of Scripture, God has given us sufficient revelation for salvation and for obedient living. One more time, Barrett's definition, the sufficiency of Scripture means that all things necessary for salvation and for living the Christian life in obedience to God and for his glory are given to us in the Scriptures. Well, the second definition that I want to share is written by another theologian named Wayne Grudem. Grudem says this, quote, the sufficiency of scripture means that scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. What I like about Grudem's definition is that it gets at the idea of what we call progressive revelation. It gets at the idea that God gave enough revelation for salvation, for living a godly life, enough revelation during each stage of his people's history. The idea is 
that at each stage of God's revelation, so whether you lived in the time when only a few Old Testament books had been written, or whether you lived in the time when the Old Testament was complete, but there was not yet a New Testament, or whether you live now when we have the complete 66-book Bible, at each stage of God's revelation, he ensured that his people had enough revelation. He made sure that his people had sufficient divine revelation. And concerning this fact, let's go to the scriptures. Uh, Come with me for a moment, if you have your Bible, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And in this chapter, we see something that I think is pretty striking here. So just to get the context again, this is the elder Paul speaking to the younger Timothy. And in verse 15 of 2 Timothy 3, Paul says something that is quite amazing to young Timothy. Paul says that the sacred writings that Timothy had been acquainted with since Timothy's childhood, these sacred writings are, Paul says, able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice that. The sacred writings are able to make a person wise for salvation. Now, in the original context of 2 Timothy 3, what sacred writings, which sacred writings, was Paul referring to exactly? He was referring to the Old Testament scriptures. When Paul wrote his letter to Timothy, the New Testament had not yet taken shape. So amazingly then, it's quite amazing, Paul is referring to the Old Testament. And he says in 2 Timothy 3.15 that the Old Testament scriptures, so Genesis through Malachi, the Old Testament scriptures can make a person wise for salvation. In the words of John Feinberg, quote, Paul is saying that even the Old Testament is sufficient to point people to Jesus as God's way to salvation. Feinberg continues, anyone who claims that Old Testament saints or those relying only on the Old Testament couldn't be saved contradicts 2 Timothy 3.15. Close quote. Now, if it was true in Paul and Timothy's day that the Old Testament scriptures were sufficient to make a person wise for salvation in Christ, how much more is it the case, friends, that our Bible, which includes not only the Old Testament, but also the entire New Testament, How true is it of the Bible that we have that it is sufficient to make us wise for salvation? God has given us more than enough, more than enough in the Christian scriptures for us to be saved. One example 
We can go to a place like 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12, 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12, and see in that text very clearly that we must have the Son of God if we would have eternal life. John says very clearly in verse 12 of that passage, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. It's very clear. And then the question becomes, well, how do we get the Son so that we would have eternal life? And the answer to that question is, of course, spelled out very explicitly in John 3.16, where God says to us that we must believe in the Son to have eternal life. We must receive Jesus in faith. Again, our broader point here. In the Bible, God has given us all things necessary for us to be saved from his wrath and to come into right relationship with him and to have eternal life. The Bible is sufficient to lead us to salvation. We're talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. And God has given us all things necessary in the Bible that we would live a life pleasing to him that we would live a life in obedience to him, bringing glory to his name. Let's go back to 2 Timothy 3 again, just for a moment. So after telling Timothy that the Old Testament scriptures are able to make a person wise for salvation, Paul then goes on to say in verse 17, that the Bible has been, listen, the Bible has been given to make God's people complete, equipped for how many good works? For every work. The word every is a comprehensive word. It means all good works. The complete set of God-glorifying works. The Bible is sufficient to equip us for every good work, that will bring pleasure to God. The question we need to pose to ourselves is, why would we not, why would we not have our noses prayerfully in the Bible, getting as much exposure to the Bible as we possibly can in this life, if the Bible equips us for every good work, and brings glory to God and benefit to us and to our neighbor. Every good work that brings glory to God and benefit to us and benefit to our neighbor. Now, at this juncture, I think it is prudent just to sort of pause for a minute to reassert what we have been asserting throughout this series of sermons, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit in combination with the Bible, the work of the Holy Spirit in combination with the Bible. You see, the danger when we start talking about the sufficiency of Scripture is that someone will take that as a de-emphasis on the Holy Spirit and on his role. 
But that's not what we're doing when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. I think it might be helpful here if we say essentially what John Frame says, which is this. When we are talking about the sufficiency of Scripture, we're talking about a sufficiency of divine words, a sufficiency of divine words, but the Holy Spirit remains absolutely and critically necessary to illuminate us as we read and study those divine words. Again, when we are talking about the sufficiency of Scripture, we are talking about a sufficiency of divine words But the Holy Spirit remains absolutely and critically necessary, fully necessary, to illuminate us as we read and study those divine words. Or we might put the matter like this. Scripture is indeed the only source of divine revelation that we need. And it is fully sufficient to lead us to salvation and to every good work. However, although Scripture is the only source of divine revelation that we need, it is not the only thing we need in the Christian life. Most importantly, we need the Spirit with the Word. We must try to get the Spirit's role in balance here. As we've stressed already in these weeks, we don't come to the Spirit seeking new revelation or additional revelation or improved revelation on top of what He has already inspired in His Word. And we don't do that because the Word is sufficient. But on the other side of the coin, it must also be stressed that as we come to the sufficient Bible, neither do we ignore the Spirit or eliminate Him or downplay Him, saying to ourselves, ah, well, Scripture is sufficient, I don't need the Spirit. No, a thousand times no. We must stress again here, Word and Spirit always go together, they belong together. Matthew Barrett says it like this, quote, God gives us his sufficient word, but he intends the Spirit to come alongside us to help us to understand, and I would add here, to apply his word. One more time, God gives us his sufficient word, but he intends the Spirit to come alongside us to help us to understand and to apply his word. Spirit and word, word and spirit, we must keep both in balance. But now another question, another question that sometimes comes up as we begin to talk about the sufficiency of Scripture is this question. If the scripture is sufficient, working with the spirit, as we have suggested, uh, to lead a person to salvation, to good works, then what value do human teachers of scripture have? 
And for that matter, what value do study aids and commentaries on Scripture and books on theology have? What value do those things have? Well, to answer that question, I can't do any better, actually, than to take you back to John Feinberg. I think he gives us a very thoughtful answer. It's a longer quote. I'm going to read it to you, but I think it's worth our consideration. Feinberg says this, quote, We understand Scripture through careful exegesis, using rules of interpretation that we have learned from our understanding of ordinary language. We also get help in grasping the writer's message from teachers who have already studied the text in more depth and can draw our attention to key elements in the text and explain what they mean. We may glean information from commentaries, from theological works which discuss doctrines raised in passages that we are studying, and from various works in Bible background fields of study, like ancient Near Eastern literature, archaeology, etc. Feinberg says, None of these is Scripture, nor are teachers' explanations equal to Scripture. All of these study helps are humanly produced and fallible to some extent, but that doesn't mean they are of no help when we want help in understanding Scripture. So, he says, espousing Scripture as sufficient to present God's message doesn't rule out the need for or the usefulness of the various study aids mentioned for Scripture must still be interpreted, understood, and applied. Close quote. I told you it was a longer quote, but it's uh, very, uh, very thoughtful and very helpful, I think. Well, friends, this morning our focus again is on the sufficiency of this 66-book Bible that God has given us. The Bible has come to us perfectly complete. Nothing needs to be added to it and nothing can be taken away from it. It stands sufficient as we have it. Say I have a measuring cup and I want to fill that measuring cup with precisely one metric cup of water. In that case, I go ahead and I put exactly... 250 milliliters of water in that cup, no more and no less. If I take one milliliter away, now I have 249 milliliters of water. I no longer have precisely one metric cup. Or if I add, say, three milliliters to the 250, then also I have something different than exactly a cup. It's actually now more than a cup. Well, friends, the Bible is something like that precisely filled 250 milliliter cup of water. We cannot delete anything from the Bible. Neither are we free to add anything to it. And this principle of nothing added to God's revelation and nothing taken away from it either, this principle is voiced on more than one occasion in Scripture itself. For example, 
in Deuteronomy chapter 4, when Moses is encouraging the people to obey the Lord so that they might take the promised land, Moses says to the people in verse 2, Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word that I command you. So, no 251 milliliters, nor take from it, he says, so no 249 milliliters, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. It's Deuteronomy 4.2. And then again, a little later in Deuteronomy, in 12.32, chapter 12, verse 32, we have something quite similar. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. So there is this principle already in Deuteronomy, early in the Bible, this principle of non-addition to and non-subtraction from the Word of God. Further along in Scripture, we also have Proverbs 30, verse 6, which warns us again not to add to God's words. It says, do not add to his words, to God's words. So to add something to the scripture like the Book of Mormon is a clear violation of this divine command not to add to God's word. And then in addition to the verses that we've just mentioned, we also have that very famous passage right at the tail end of the Bible in Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19, and it reads like this. I warn everyone who hears the words. This is right at the end of the Bible. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, in the context of the book of Revelation, that warning not to add and not to take away applies especially to the book of Revelation itself, However, since this passage is situated at the very end of the entire Bible, I think it's legitimate to read it as looking back over the whole of God's unified book, right back to Genesis 1.1. It is a warning to us not to add or subtract anything from the 66-book canon of Scripture. The whole Bible is God's precise 250 milliliter metric cup, so to speak. We are prohibited from either adding to it or subtracting from it. And what, what's pretty interesting to think about here is how God sovereignly limited the Bible so that it ends up as this exact 66-book canon that we now have. Think about this with me just for a moment. We know for a fact, for a fact, that Jesus performed 
many more signs than we have written record of in the Bible. John 20 verse 30 tells us so. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Wow! Wouldn't it be wonderful to have written record of the signs that John refers to there? But we don't. Why? Because God in his divine counsel has given us the precise 250 milliliters, so to speak, the exact measure of words that he found it necessary to give us. He has given us all that he sovereignly decided we would need. Likewise, in Numbers 21, Numbers 21 verses 14 and 15, we're given a brief quote from a book there that is named, and the book is called The Book of the Wars of Yahweh. The brief quote from that book that's given there in Numbers 21, well, God inspired that quote in our Bible, but the larger book of the wars of Yahweh, this book has been lost to us. We don't have this particular book that is mentioned in that passage. God decided that we did not need the entire book. Something similar happens also in places like 2 Chronicles 9.29 and 2 Chronicles 12.15, where we have written documents mentioned, such as the visions of Ido the seer and the chronicles of Shemaiah the prophet, etc. There are more of them in those passages. More books lost to us Although they are mentioned in Scripture, they were not preserved by God in Scripture based on the sovereign decision of God. In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9, the Apostle Paul mentions a letter he wrote to the Corinthian church, which is a letter aside from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that we already have. It's a third letter. And this letter that he mentions in that verse is likewise lost to us. God decided we didn't need that third letter to the Corinthians. In Colossians 4.16, Paul mentions the letter from Laodicea. The letter from Laodicea, also lost to us. Again, friends, in these cases, God ultimately decided that these documents would not be part of the 250 milliliter cup, that they would be left out of the 66 book canon of Scripture. What we have now in the canon of Scripture must not be added to or deleted from. It is in perfect, divinely tuned balance this Bible as we have it is sufficient for all we need concerning salvation and godly living. Well, as we wrap up this sermon, I want to talk just a little bit about the sufficiency of Scripture and us. Or how this doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture interacts with your life and with my life. How it affects us 
in real life? Here's the question that I've been asking of myself this week. And believe me, I've been asking it. The question is, do I really, actually, deeply, genuinely believe that Scripture is sufficient? If so, what is the proof of that in my day-to-day? What signs or what tendencies in my life either suggest that I do have a deep trust in Scripture's sufficiency or, on the other side, are there signs in my life that would suggest, in fact, I have less confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture than I say I have. When a trial comes into my life, a deep, difficult trial, or when a highly confusing decision presents itself in my life, or when I am challenged with some anxious thing in my life, some anxious situation, Is my knee-jerk reaction in those situations to go immediately to Scripture there to seriously seek what God says, to listen to His wisdom, to find His solutions to my quandaries? Is that my reaction? Or is my tendency to stay far too long stewing in my own subjective feelings and trying to come up with my own answers and my own solutions. Is Scripture sufficient in my life actually? And do I trust Scripture such? Do I revere what God has said such that even when my mind is made up on some decision, even when I come to Scripture hoping to find support for the decision or the position that I have already concluded on, but then what I actually find happening is that Scripture devastates my position or greatly challenges my position, am I then willing to be honest with myself under God and say, that I need change here. I have been wrong based on what God has revealed in his word. The question is, do I take scripture as sufficient actually in real life? Do I come under scripture despite my feelings? Do I let scripture interpret me? Do I let scripture sort me out? Or, Is it more the case that really I'm taking my experience, my thinking, my plans, my designs, my conclusions as more sufficient than the inspired word of my creator? May God's spirit continue to break us. That's what needs to happen. May he continue to break us. May God kindle in each of us a desperation, a desperation for his word, a dependence 
on what he has breathed out in Scripture. May we become, friends, like children who run to the voice of their parent. May we always be sprinting to the Word of God. And if you're a person listening who is not yet in right relationship with God through the only Savior, his Son, Jesus Christ, I pray right now that the Spirit would be pleased by his sufficient word of salvation in a place like John 3.16, that he would be pleased to arrest your heart right now, that you would put your faith in the only Savior, Jesus Christ, trusting him for the forgiveness of your sin that has been provided on his cross, and that even now the Spirit would rebirth you, even now, even as you're listening. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have revealed to us this sufficient word that gives us all we need for salvation and for living a life that is pleasing to you. We thank you that you have not left us confused and wondering. Praise you, Lord, for the word that you have breathed out.